a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. I know you're out there seeking truth, looking for a little bit better slant on what's happening around the world. But you're not just doing it because you're a masochist and you like to feel bad or, you know, you like to be miserable or upset or scared. No, you are a different breed. You are looking for timely, credible information that will help you better understand the world. Not so you can sit back and complain about it and commiserate, commiserate with everybody else over, yeah, that makes me angry too, but rather... You want to do something about it. And that's why you and I have connected. Thank you so much for tuning in today. By the way, I'm going to give you a warning, head, just a heads up here. I'm going to be touching on some topics today that uh, are probably going to bring some discomfort. Yes, Israel is among them. So <laughs> I'm just going to say that. Uh, we'll spend a little bit of time uh, talking about uh, how false accusations of anti-Semitism tend to advance a pretty sick impulse. In fact, they they promote a sick impulse over a healthy impulse. And I've got uh, Caitlin Johnstone offering an an explanation on this. And it's, like I say, not everybody's going to agree with it. So if I hear from you, I hear from you. But I think this is information that's worth considering. What you do with it, that's up to you. You may reject it outright. A lot of people seem to be, you know, kind of on edge about this thing. We'll share that coming up here in in a later segment. To start out, though, because I am a believer in fourth-turning methodology, meaning we are in the midst of a fourth-turning crisis, and for those who aren't familiar with it, this is a book written by historians Strauss and Howe back in uh, 1997, I believe it was published, chronicling historical cycles that uh, roughly approximate the seasons, right? Spring is green and full of promise and fresh and things are really, really good. That's, that's the founding. And then there's, there's summer and things are still good, but uh, they're also starting to get a little too comfortable by fall. You know, things are starting to come unraveled. Things are starting to fall apart. And eventually winter comes with it. There's usually a crisis or storm of some sort that uh, tends to change the entire landscape, not just politically, but institution wise. And one of the big things is that people lose trust in institutions, especially during that fourth-turning crisis. So when I saw that Doug Casey had done an interview with International Man about uh, why people are losing their trust in American institutions, I thought, okay, this is, this is good information to know. This is something that I think could actually be very helpful to those trying to better understand what's happening around us. And, and look, if, if you're not familiar with fourth-turning methodology, don't, don't think, oh, so this is, a, this is all about uh, you know, justifying the apocalypse. It's not. It's about recognizing the patterns of what's happening, realizing that it's happened before, and then understanding that you and I have, we have a say. <clears throat> we have impact on how this fourth-turning turns out. Will it turn out for the better, like previous ones? You know, the colonies standing up to Britain, winning their independence, creating the Constitution and a a new system of governance? I think that was a pretty good outcome. But see, the next fourth turning, that would have been the war between the states and Reconstruction. 
Yeah, it ended. There were some things that were satisfactory. Chattel slavery ended, but but we were not a we were not a republic. We were not practicing federalism the same way at the end of Lincoln's War of Involuntary Union. Last fourth turning was World War II and, of course, the Cold War. Um, World War II, when it ended, the Great Depression and World War II, when it was done, I'm sure people breathed a big sigh of relief. But again, the point is the whole political and the whole institutional landscape was different on the other side of that turning. So with that in mind, okay, hopefully you're with me on this. Let's talk a little bit about why we are losing trust and confidence in our leaders and institutions. International Man asked Doug Casey, according to a recent Gallup poll, the American people's confidence in their leaders and most important institutions has collapsed to the lowest figure ever recorded. Interesting. Americans have never been more distrustful of the federal government, big business, the media, the education system, science institutions, the medical establishment, big tech companies, and law enforcement. Mm, Sounds about right. So Doug is asked, okay, Doug, what's your take? You ready for this? Doug Casey says the distrust is well-deserved. He says, of course, if you want to see a real collapse of confidence in institutions, uh, the institutions themselves, take a look at Haiti. That's what happens when a society is on the ragged edge of a revolution, a civil war, or a societal collapse. Traditions, common ethical standards, civil institutions are what make a society livable. But when they disintegrate, he says, you are looking at chaos, and it can happen anywhere. Civilization, he says, is a relatively thin veneer in a Hobbesian world. Right? Remember Hobbes? Talking about how life would be nasty, brutish, and short without Leviathan to keep us in, in check? Well, in the U.S., Doug says, it's happening because the society's institutions have been captured by woke, collectivist, busybody, and statist philosophies. He says the people promoting wokeism and the like want to destroy the current basis of society pretty much as the Maoists did during their great cultural revolution. They want to overturn the trust, the traditions, and cultural beliefs that bind society together. Perversely, as they succeed, they'll say, well, the U.S. is headed towards anarchy, which of course is completely untrue. It's headed toward chaos. Anarchy, as many readers know, means simply the lack of of government, the lack of a coercive state on top of society. I think the, the literal definition is lack of a ruler. You don't need somebody ruling you. It doesn't mean lack of rules. Anarcho-capitalism and unregulated free markets are not only workable, says Doug Casey, but they're optimal when people have confidence in their society and their institutions. Now, he points out they're often confused with chaos and nihilism, their philosophical opposites, which in fact are taking over society. Now, from here, International Man actually shows a specific breakdown of the data from Gallup. And this is a very interesting graph, so I hope you'll click on the link I'm providing in my show notes. These are the notes for uh, November 17th, 2023 at com. But it's the recent trend, 2021, 2022, 2023, showing the respective trend in Americans' confidence in institutions. And we're talking small business, the military, the police, the medical system, the church or organized religion, the U.S. Supreme Court, banks, public schools, the presidency, large uh, technology companies, organized labor, newspapers, the criminal justice system, television news, big business, and Congress. By the way, 
confidence is highest for small business and lowest for Congress, although Congress is up one percentage point from last year. So there's a, there's a, a breakdown from Gallup, and they ask Doug Casey, what do you think of this? Now, Doug says, I have pretty limited confidence in polls, and even less now as society breaks down, which paradoxically is just what these polls are showing. Everybody is reverting to their tribes or their individual silos. The U.S. is much less of a cohesive society than it used to be. Now, he says, the things listed on the chart, all those institutions, they're important elements of our society. So it's clear confidence in institutions has dropped a lot. And he says, I think there's a correspondence with the late COVID hysteria, which tore the fabric of society and polarized people. Before the whole fiasco, including the vaccine, is over, it could turn out to be one of the biggest disasters in modern history. So he says, I'm not surprised to see all these numbers dropping just in the last three years. And then Gallup breaks down that 2023 confidence in institutions by political party. And it's it's a fairly it's a it's a fairly good difference. I think uh, I think you'll see that you know the the party percentage point difference as far as support of the Supreme Court. I think that's the highest difference is twenty eight percentage points in difference. The lowest was the presidency, which is negative thirty nine. What does that mean anyway? Doug Casey responds to this and says, "Well, you can see the Democrats are pro political, state oriented things." Republicans, on the other hand, according to this chart from Gallup, tend to be more individualist-centered. So from an economic point of view, Democrats like socialist and collectivist ideas. Republicans tend to prefer capitalist or free market ideas. He says the Democrats are favorably inclined toward coercion. Republicans are more inclined towards individual responsibility. But, Doug says, very few of either group have thought things in, have thought these things out with any intellectual rigor. In other words, their beliefs, and this includes the Republicans, are mostly based on gut feelings and emotion. Now, the poll lists uh, independence, which is a meaningless catch-all. Independence could mean anyone from ANCAPs and libertarians and classical liberals to communists or Maoists or neo-Nazis. That said, he says what the numbers represented here, uh, they, they, he says they pretty well correspond with his own experience and what he sees. Then to come back with some more of Doug um, Casey's analysis of this Gallup poll, but I'm going to ask you to consider this as we go to break. How's your confidence in our institutions doing? I'm pretty strong on some of them, mostly those that aren't part of the state. How about you? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I am sharing with you an article that I picked up off of lewrockwell.com today, one of my favorite resources for wrong thinkers. And it's an interview that International Man did with uh, Doug Casey. And I don't want to sound like I'm a huge Doug Casey fanboy. I do follow his writings, and I have for quite a few years. But uh, the guy makes a lot of sense. And so I'm sharing this with you. If it makes sense to you, that's great. And if it doesn't, I'm not offended. I don't think you're stupid or evil because you don't agree. I'm just saying Doug Doug seems to have a pretty good grasp of this. So when we talk about the collapse of trust in American institutions by political party, one of the things Doug points out here in the Gallup uh, 
in uh, analyzing Gallup's numbers is he says, I think the Republicans have more confidence in the Supreme Court right now, mainly because they more or less control the Supreme Court. Now, he says, I'm sure if the Dems controlled it, the situation would be reversed. As for the church and organized religion, he says the Republicans are more traditionally oriented than the Democrats. So, of course, the Democrats have less confidence in the church. And same goes for police. But right now, they'll defend a reasonably free status quo. But if the U.S. devolves into a police state, they will defend that new status quo. So, Republicans are currently pretty pro-cop. That could change. After all, the FBI seems to think MAGA people are potential terrorists. By the way, have you heard that the FBI is actively purging from its ranks Christians, conservatives, people who are uh, unvaccinated? <laughs> I mean, that's I. It, you, you get the picture. They are they are definitely uh, weeding out what they call the problem children, which is anybody who still believes in right and wrong. Now, interestingly enough, as far as the failing trust in American institutions. The data seems to show that nobody trusts big business. Doug Casey says that makes a lot of sense because big business is so hooked up with government. They're like a dog and master. Sometimes the master kicks the dog. Sometimes the dog bites the master. But you're not even sure which one's which. Big business isn't run by entrepreneurs. It's run by suits. The kind who thought the Bud Light campaign was a good idea. The ones who endorse DEI and ESG In fact, Doug comes right out and just says, they're unprincipled whores. Only a fool would trust big business today. Now, he says, it's interesting that people still have confidence in the military, but he says, however, that will soon evaporate since diversity hires are now in control from the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and Secretary of Defense to the commandants of the services. In fact, the military has been ostentatiously promoting trannies and gays while talking down straight white guys from the South and Midwest who've always formed its backbone. Well, he says, you can rest assured confidence in the military will collapse along with its effectiveness. And it's gratifying that confidence is still relatively high for small business. That's one of the few areas where owners have skin in the game and interact face-to-face with customers. Confidence in the medical system, he says, predictably, collapsed further during COVID. How can anyone maintain confidence when it acts on political and economic as opposed to medical and scientific values? Excellent point. He also says, since the inception of Obamacare, medical procedures have become much more expensive and much more bureaucratized. Effectiveness and confidence in it will continue to degrade. Can I just say, for the record, I look forward to the day that we have confidence again in our medical system. I don't right now. My directive to my family is, is if I'm having a heart attack, let me die. Do not take me to St. Luke's. Not only do I not want to pay them any more money than I've already paid them in the last year, and I'm still paying them for medical bills, but uh, I I do not want to be placed in their care. I don't want to be taken into enemy territory, even if it's for the purpose of trying to save my life. Now, if there's an independent clinic or something like that, hey, by all means. But that's how little confidence I have in the, the medical establishment at this point, the medical system. And by the way, I, I'm sorry, I know good people. My own daughter is a registered nurse. I, there are good people who work within that system. But the system itself, from all of the COVID nonsense down to the, the crony uh, capitalism, uh, the, the, that 
unhealthy relationship that uh, that it has being in bed with government. Bad news. Bad news. My my confidence has has degraded in the medical community, and and it, it will likely stay that way until something drastically changes. Like there's a separation of church or separation of state and medicine, like the separation of church and state. Now, Doug says Democrats naturally have confidence in organized labor and anti-capitalist mentality is kind of their thing. Same with public schools. He says the party's party differences here amount to a permanent fault line. But it's not just trust in institutions that's collapsing. Trust in people is falling. Trust between people, I should say, is falling. So what are the social and political implications of that? Well, Doug says it seems that about 200 is the number of people that you can know reasonably well on a face-to-face basis. Now, that's about the size of a typical military company or, if you wish, a small tribe. We seem wired for face-to-face contact with a relatively small number of associates, but he says even that's falling apart in today's world, and we find it vaguely disorienting. It's partly because reality has become heavily electronic. People spend so much time on their electronic media hearing what the people in the world at large, people they've never even met, are supposedly saying that they're justifiably uncertain what to believe. They're no longer talking to the people in their basic clan or tribe as we've done for hundreds of thousands of years. He says, we're finding that we may share very few values with the world, which we experience mainly through television, mass media, and social media. So, of course, you have less confidence in other people. They're electronic avatars, not real people. We know we're all just faceless members of the masses. It's alienating. Meanwhile, the state has become vastly more powerful and pervasive because of mass culture. Its nature is to try to make things happen with force and coercion. So it's always making more and more rules with penalties. Oh, and by the way, anyone can rat you out remotely including people who might have been a part of your local clan or tribe. As indebted workers, cogs in the industrial wheel, were easily corrupted. You can justifiably feel that you can't trust anybody, least of all some faceless institution. So the ultimate consequence of all this, Doug says, that's the breakup of the large conglomeration called the United States. He says its citizens used to share more or less common religious values, cultures, traditions, and trust in its institutions. But he says they no longer do. It's going to fly apart. And it's an excellent bet that the U.S. will cease to exist in its current form. That's a hard truth, but I think he's right. He says, I wouldn't be too worried. We've, uh, he says, you know, if, if, if we were, certainly in 100 years, he says, maybe 50 years, maybe less than that, very possibly through secession, maybe through civil war, financial and economic collapse are in the cards. Yeah, it's all on the table. Possibly World War III as well. Now, his point is it's going to be unpleasant and inconvenient, and the same is true for most countries in the world to a greater or lesser degree. He says, I think we're looking at generalized chaos for at least the rest of this decade. Now, if we were still America, he says, and we had solid traditions and trustworthy institutions, I wouldn't be too worried, but we're not. He says, we've devolved into a degenerate empire. The U.S. of the 21st century is looking a lot like Rome of the 5th century. So where are these trends headed, you know, and the collapse of these institutions? Well, Doug says a lot of this has to do with the financialization of the world and urbanization as well. And it has a lot to do with an active effort on the part of socialists, not just Marxists who are overtly violent and destructive, but democratic Fabian socialists who organize to to corrupt society and its institutions in a kinder, gentler way. 
Although they wouldn't say corrupt, they say, we just want to transform the world's institutions. And they've generally succeeded. Governments, media, academia, the entertainment industry, corporations, and philosophy in general tend to orient toward Fabian socialist values. That's the root of the problem. Lawfare is running wild right now. You'll see that very common with uh, with cancel culture. So it's to be expected. You got modern day Jacobins using the apparatus of democracy to destroy democracy. And they're succeeding because they have moral power. They're viewed as righteous, which is why they've been able to capture an idealistic younger generation in universities. So hold on to your hat. Times are about to get to even more interesting than they are currently. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I have a, I have a piece that I want to play for you that I thought was really interesting. And I, I don't spend a ton of time focusing on what's going on in Washington, D.C. Just, you know, I don't like to feed the, the political zeitgeist. There's too much of it as there is. But I did come across a video of Representative Higgins. What's his name? Representative Clay Higgins from Louisiana attempting to ask FBI Director Christopher Wray about two vehicles he described as ghost buses that arrived in Washington, D.C. in the early morning of January 6th, 2021, presumably filled with FBI assets, operatives, uh, informants, confidential human intelligence sources, whatever it may be. Um, They did not want him asking this question in this hearing, though. So I'm going to play this excerpt. I want you to hear him trying to pin down Mr. Ray. I want you to notice very carefully, too, when he asks Mr. Ray for a definitive answer, Ray answers some other question. He de- redirects the question to something entirely different. Here's Give a listen to this for yourself and tell me this isn't just amazing. Director Ray. Last year, you might recall, sir, our exchange regarding the FBI's involvement on January 6th and prior. I'm happy to jog your memory to quote, according to the record, I asked you, did you have confidential human sources dressed as Trump supporters positioned inside the Capitol on January 6th prior to the doors being opened? You responded, I quote, again, I have to be very careful of what I say which I said, it should be a no. Can you not tell the American people, no, we did not have confidential human sources dressed as Trump supporters positioned inside the Capitol on January 6th? A year has passed. We sit here again a year later. We, the people, still do not have a definitive answer from you or anyone else in the Biden administration regarding the FBI presence and participation in the months leading up to the November election and in the weeks and days prior to January 6th and on January 6th here in D.C. We can't get a straight answer, although we have a tremendous amount of evidence harvested and reviewed over the course of the last year, which you will see 
In September, Stephen Dartano, formerly in charge of the FBI's field office in Washington, D.C., testified to the House Judiciary Committee that he was aware the FBI informants would attend the Stop the Steal rally thrown on January 6th. You confirmed that the FBI had confidential human sources at the Stop the Steal rally on January 6th here in D.C., sir? Congressman, as we've discussed before, I'm not going to get into where we have or have not used confidential human sources. But what okay, I can we'll tell move you, on. you asked for a definitive We'll move answer. on. It's my time. You said no, you're not going to answer. That's cool. We're watching. Mr. Chairman, may you're, I answer you're, the question? Your moment, your moment will come. This is my time. Earlier this year, an FBI informant who is reported to have, quote, his quote, under oath, marched to the U.S. Capitol with fellow Proud Boys members on January the 6th, close quote. He said he was communicating with his FBI handler while people were entering the U.S. Capitol. Can you confirm that the FBI had that sort of engagement with your own agents embedded within the crowd on January 6th? If you are asking whether the violence at the Capitol on January 6th was part of some operation orchestrated by FBI sources and or agents, the answer is emphatically You're saying not. no? He didn't answer the question. Did you notice how he ducked it? He totally shifted it and, and avoided answering the question. Sorry, but I just had to point out that little bit of sleazy sliminess. No. You're saying no? Not okay. violence orchestrated Let's by FBI on. sources or agents. Are you familiar with, with, you know what a ghost vehicle is? Director, director of the FBI certainly should. You know what a ghost bus is? A ghost bus? Ghost bus. I'm not sure I've used that term before. Okay. Well, it's pretty common in, in law enforcement. It's a, it's a vehicle that's, that's used for secret purposes. It's painted over. These two buses in the middle here, they were the first to arrive at Union Station on January 6th, 0500. I have all this evidence. I'm showing you a tip of this iceberg. Mr. Chairman. These two buses... Mr. Painted completely white. Okay, I'm going to stop the clip here because th this is where they start trying to say, "Well, you know, his time is up, and uh, we need to uh, we need to make sure that uh, you know we're we're honoring everybody's time commitments and so far." But he's showing pictures of these buses. They're painted over. There's no logo showing. Did the government bus assets to the Capitol? Did they have people working undercover? Ray doesn't want to answer this. And by the way, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, there's an Antifa member, uh, John Sullivan. I think it's I think it's John, um, one of the Sullivan brothers from Utah, who was there in the Capitol, standing next to Ashley Babbitt when she was shot and killed. He was one of the ones urging her, "Go on in, go on in." You know, at the time that she was killed, he sold his video footage to CNN for like fifty thousand dollars. And he just uh, was, I believe, either charged or um, I don't think he's been to trial yet, but he has been charged, you know, in, in connection with the January 6th, you know, attack on the Capitol. But again, this was an Antifa mev member dressed in Trump gear out there agitating and making things happen. I guess I'm sharing this with you not because, you know, there's this, we just need to know Trump is president. No, 
I'm not stumping for, you know, a, a rematch here. I'm not trying to, to try the 2020 election here in the court of public opinion. I'm just saying that the official version of what happened there, nobody is telling the truth. And I do love the fact that Mr. Higgins closed his comment saying, hey, this is a very significant hearing, Mr. Chairman. He says these buses are nefarious in nature, If they and, and they were filled with FBI informants dressed as Trump supporters, deployed onto our Capitol January 6th, and he warns, your day is coming, Mr. Ray. Gosh, we can only hope so. Oh, to, to see the FBI... Frankly, I would love to see it just dismantled because it is rapidly becoming something that even the KGB would look at and go, whoa, that's a little too political. Uh, Yeah, yeah, you guys are going to have trouble if you you keep going that direction. But that's where we are. Anyway, I thought it was a fascinating exchange, but the most fascinating part is the fact that... uh, the, they, that Ray didn't answer the question. He redirected it to something that wasn't even asked. Right? Any FBI agents or confidential informants dressed up as Trump supporters were there to create the event that they wanted to create. And if they, if they weren't, they would have been working to stop the break-in rather than facilitate it. That makes sense, right? This is just simple logic. At the very least, the FBI was knowingly complicit through professional negligence, but that's just for starters, right? Nancy Pelosi denied, you know, the the possibility of bringing National Guard in for more security, you know, to, to prevent break-ins to the Capitol. She didn't want it. I know. That sounds pretty conspiratorial, Brian. It does. It really does. But the evidence seems to be pointing towards members of our government, or at least part of the bureaucracy, part of the deep state, at the very least had a hand in crafting the events of January 6th so that they could call it an insurrection and demonize 70 million Americans as potential domestic terrorists and a threat to the state. That's pretty sick stuff. But that's exactly the way that it has played out. I mean, that's that's exactly what they did. Well, everybody, everyone, uh, MAGA, these MAGA extremists, you know, the the uh, president says in his Reichs, uh, Reichstag uh, speech that he gave <laughs> last year, holy cow. And, of course, the press isn't going to ask inconvenient questions. Much of the public doesn't really want to know either because this is one of those things we're just not so sure about. You know, finding a credible, objective source for news is not very easy. But when you're being actively gaslighted, you know, by the editors who pick and choose which stories you need to know. Got a great article, by the way, from Richard Kelly from Australia talking about, um, I guess, a new editor took over a newspaper there in, uh, in, in Australia and was, you know, in, in responding to the readers telling you, this is why we pick the stories that are best for you. We know what's best for you. We don't just give you the same old stuff that every other news outlet is giving you. No, no, no. We choose your stories very carefully and whatnot. But it's like, hello. What did you just admit? You pick and choose what stories are worth publishing and what stories we need to know. I wonder how many people just recognize that guy just explained how I'm a filter for your mind. Yeah, the ones who were paying attention caught on. You don't need somebody to do your thinking for you. Seriously, you don't. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome. It is the final segment of today's show. uh, I mean, uh, coincidentally, it's the most controversial segment of today's show as well. As I will soon explain... If you haven't signed up for my show notes yet, I would love to drop a copy of them into your email inbox each day that I do the program. It's a pretty simple thing. I don't share your email address. I don't give it to anybody. I don't sell it to anybody. I don't uh, don't even lend it to a friend to borrow, you know, while they make a quick road trip. Nope. Nope. This is just for uh, if you want to check out the show notes and see, uh, follow the links, maybe do a little bit more uh, research on your own. It's a great way to do it. I do try to aggregate as much good information as I can each day, but I'm sure there's stuff I miss. And by the way, I got to throw this out there too. I greatly appreciate those of you who take the time to send articles to me, which you can do that through my website. Again, the Brian I have eyes and ears, but uh, they're limited, but I sure appreciate those who keep their eyes and ears open and, and help me, you know, get clued into things that, uh, that can shed some light on the world around us. Okay. Let's dive in. This is the controversial part. It's curious to me how easy it is to get yourself labeled as an anti-Semite simply by questioning any aspect of Israeli government policy. And it's disturbing. I don't know if you've... I I don't watch the personality, so I'm really not caught up in this catfight, but holy cow, I guess uh, um, Ben Shapiro and Candace Owens, you know, these are people ostensibly on the same side, both, you know, right for the Daily Wire and and whatnot. They are... there, There is such division over Israel, over the the attack in Israel in October, and, of course, the Israeli response in Gaza. Um, I've been paying attention long enough that I know not to get sucked into. It's either this side or that side. You know, you do have the option. You don't have to pick one side or the other. You're, You're being placed on the horns of a dilemma and told these are your only two possible choices. You're either with Hamas or you're with Israel. No. That's not true. <laughs> you, you and I are thinking human beings, and, and we can rationally look at things for ourselves and decide whether or not, you know, something is good or not. But to question anything of the Israeli government's policy, boy, you are, you are going to get yourself labeled as an anti-Semite. And Caitlin Johnstone, who, again, she's coming at this from the political left, says, you know, false accusations of anti-Semitism exploit a healthy impulse in order to advance a profoundly sick one. So I want to give you a couple of excerpts from her article. She says, The most despicable thing about the way Israel supporters smear Israel's critics as anti-Semites is that they know they're exploiting a very healthy impulse in order to advance a profoundly sick impulse. In other words, they knowingly exploit the fact that the further to the left someone is on the political spectrum, the more likely they are to A, support Palestinian rights, and B, be very receptive to any suggestion that they might be acting in a racially insensitive way. Now, she says, my followers who are on the right side of the political spectrum always have melodramatic conniptions whenever I say this. But she says, there is a lot of value in learning about the role racial inequality plays in the injustices of our society and getting real with ourselves about where our own racial circumstances fit in with those unjust power dynamics. She says, it's a very healthy impulse to look within yourself and figure out if there's anything in you as an individual that figures that feeds rather into the racial injustices of our society, whether you're aware of it at first or not. This is especially true of white people, she says, since racial injustices tend to benefit us in this society. 
So the further someone is toward the left end of the spectrum, the more likely they are to respond to an accusation of racism by stopping in their tracks and inquiring deeply into whether the accusation might have some truth to it. If the accusation is that you harbor the same kind of racism that gave gave rise to the Holocaust, one of the worst mass atrocities in all of human history, well, then you're more likely to stop and take the accusation seriously. That's a healthy impulse. She says if everyone took seriously their responsibility to expunge everything in them that feeds into the injustices of our world, we would have peace and harmony on earth very quickly. But she says, have you noticed that it's never the actual anti-Semites who get attacked as anti-Semitic? Nowadays, she says, it's very seldom the a-holes saying Jews rule the world and are the source of society's ills who are inundated with such accusations. Supporters of Israel tend to more or less leave them alone. But the ones who get slandered as anti-Semitic are people like Jeremy Corbyn. Leftists who dedicated their entire lives to anti-racism, whose only actual offense is believing that Palestinians are human beings and should be treated as such. I know there's, there's a lot of emotion that drives this particular issue. But Caitlin also posts the Israel Apologist Translation Guide. So when someone says, you're an anti-Semite, or you hate Jews, or you want Jews to die, or you love Hamas, or you side with the terrorists, what that means in every single one of those translations is, I cannot defend Israel's actions using fact and logic. I know that's going to that's gonna make some people upset, because I suspect that people are probably going to be more on the Israel side than not if you're listening to this program. All I'm going to suggest is, Pay close attention. When someone starts hollering, you know, anti-Semitism, the only thing that you can know for sure when that accusation is being applied is that someone is on the wrong side of either this Jewish organization or this Jewish individual or someone who is a supporter of either Jewish individuals or Jewish organizations. In other words, When someone is accused of anti-Semitism, as Joseph Sobrand said so long ago, the only thing you can know for sure is that the Jews are not happy with them. Now, that's not condemning the Jews as well. They're all the cause of the world's problems. I've heard some pretty crazy, you know, theories. And I actually, you know, I've heard what I thought were very um, down-to-earth, you know, normal, everyday people. And then out of the blue, they would say something. I'll never forget, standing in St. George, Utah, talking to this old gentleman, you know, seeing him at church, you know, running to him at the temple and whatnot. Just a, just a great old guy. But we're sitting there talking one day and talking about some of the intrigue that was going on. I mean, this is 20-some years ago. And he finally kind of leans in. And he says, yeah, but you know, if you get right down to it, I think that the people behind it are the J-E-W-S. And I was like, Wow. That one blindsided me. I did not see that coming. It is He wasn't a hater. He wasn't a Ku Klux Klan member, but he definitely was buying into, you know, some theories that, uh, you know, I, I didn't. I do agree with Caitlin Johnstone, even though I'm not a leftist. I agree that the solution here is expand your consciousness. Take the time to root out. And I don't do this from a political point of view so much as I like to do it from more of a, a spiritual point of view. Am I contributing in some way to injustice or to oppression or am I am, I'll put it differently. This is how I put it because I those are those are such political words. In any way, am I treating God's children of whom I'm one and of whom 
you know, everybody else is also one. Am I treating them as something less than God's children? See, I'm not out here to make anybody's life more difficult. I'm not here to be better than anybody else. But I do, I'm very troubled by, by all the accusations of, well, you're either with Israel going scorched earth on every Palestinian, you know, versus, you know, I understand there's some horrible things have been done here, but there's also, there's a lot of history. There's, you know, close to eight decades of history or more. Well, there's it's actually centuries of history, thousands of years of history of, of conflict over the, the so-called Holy Land. But especially in the last, um, last eight decades since the founding of the nation of Israel, yeah, there have been some pretty big injustices done on the part of the Israelis. And I, I know it's a harsh thing to say, but I think Charlie Reese was correct when he said, the Israeli government has shown us that if they learned anything from the Holocaust, it's that uh, it's better to act like Germans than it is to act like Jews. Now, again, he's talking about the Israeli government. He's not talking about every Jew in the world thinks this way. The Israeli government has, has this very curious position where pretty much anything it does is uh, considered, you know, not to be questioned. You, you can't really look at that and, and wonder whether they're doing the right thing. And, of course, the amount of money that flows from the U.S. in terms of uh, actual money versus, you know, military aid and things like that. Yeah, they definitely have a very preferential status. All I'm saying is don't get caught up in the idea that, well, if you don't do this, then you must be anti-Semitic. couple quick notes I want to touch on here. Uh, just the, the article on uh, Mr. Beast... This is by John Miltimore, published on the American Institute for Economic Research. There's a YouTuber by the name of Mr. Beast. That's not his real name, but that's what he goes by. He's popular, and, and, and rightly so. But he has also brought clean water to half a million Africans, and yet he is under attack. Well, you know, look at all this stuff. He's making us dependent on, on other people. There's this mindset that if government isn't the one doing it, if it's being done by a private individual, something suspect here. What's this guy's angle? What's he trying to prove? Well, maybe he's just trying to help fellow human beings. Anyway, John Miltimore's article is marvelous and gives you some real background on Mr. Beast and some of the incredible work that he is doing on the continent of Africa. This is The Brian Hyde Show.